Uh, we're going to be looking, uh, as you heard in the New Testament reading, at the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, where Paul talks about uh, the ministry of the gospel that has been given to him and helps us enter a bit into his experience of that ministry. Uh, as we reflect on his ministry, we're going to also be reflecting on our own calling, our own ministry. The fact that for those of us who have uh, f- given our lives to following Christ and following his truth, that he gives us a calling uh, no matter where we find ourselves in life, no matter what our job, our vocation is, no matter what our relationships are, our family situation is, that for each of us, God places a calling, places a task upon us that is part of his plan for us. The problem with calling and the problem with ministry, whatever shape it takes, is that uh, Paul reminds us that it's brutally difficult. Oftentimes, uh, you know, for us, it's living in Ethiopia, it's serving uh, in communities of the poor, it's planting churches, um, and those things, along with just the day-to-day life of living in that context and cross-culturally and all the different facets of life and ministry that God gives us, uh, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's really hard. And the same is true for each of you. In your families, in your relationships, in your work, uh, in those explicit and implicit ways that each of us lives out the gospel, um, it's easy to become weary. It's easy to become, you know, just overwhelmed with the challenges. On this Mother's Day, uh, we think about the calling of mothers, right, in a particular way. And whether it's, uh, for those of us who have families and being celebrated as a mother, and if not all of us, right, have a mother. All of us were mothered in some way, in some form. And we recognize that that is a hard calling. It's a very challenging calling. I was watching TV a bit last night um, before I... Uh, before I went to bed, and uh, there was there was a scene on the TV, uh, kind of poking fun at at both the beauty and the idolatry, right, of mothers and Mother's Day, and it was this mother daughter scene, and uh, the daughter was like, you know, she was raising her own child now, and she looks at her own mother, and she's like, you were just the perfect mother, you were always so calm, and you were always so collected, and then you see this flashback scene, right, where where her own mother was yelling and screaming and falling apart, just like we all have those moments. We recognize that calling is hard. And Paul, in our passage, experienced that in a very particular way, as in his own traveling ministry of preaching and church planting, uh, we come to this text in 2 Corinthians, and we look at what he talks about. Um... He says, you know, in our passage in verse 1, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God. Well, what ministry? Uh, This ministry of proclaiming the gospel. 
this ministry of traveling and teaching, this ministry of, of planting churches from city to city. And back in chapter 1, he shares with us a bit about what that ministry is like. He talks about God being the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions. And then uh, he goes on to say what it was like. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, in verse 8. I don't want you to be ignorant of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You know, sometimes we are presented with a vision of kind of the triumphant Christian life. And while we do hope to experience, right, certain triumphs, certain victories in our life as Christians, the reality is that none less than the Apostle Paul uh, was so burdened during his ministry at times that he basically said, we wanted to die. We got to the point where we said it would have been easier just to die. Uh, he came in some ways to the same place that many other people in God's scriptures come to. Right? We think of Elijah coming to that point where he said, I'm, I'm just tired of this. And I would rather die than go on. And Paul says that he too comes to that place. Now... He's being very vulnerable here because part of the reason why he's writing this letter in the first place is because he's experiencing opposition. Right? He's experiencing the opposition of other teachers, other people that were traveling around and that were telling the Corinthians and other churches and other places, you know, that Paul, he, he's, he's, not, he's not a great orator. Uh, he, he doesn't have the image. He doesn't have the persona that you would hope to see from, a, from a, a teacher of God's word. You know, he, he seems weak. He's, he goes to jail. He suffers. Uh, it, it's not the victorious, triumphant Christian life that you should expect from a teacher of God's word. And these, these people that would come and, and, and speak about their own status, their own recommendations of others, that they were uh, basically more with it, more together as teachers. And putting down Paul and, and saying that because he was weak, because he suffered, that maybe there was something wrong with him or something wrong with his message. And Paul takes these things head on, right? He, he defends himself, but far more than himself, he defends the gospel of Jesus as saying, yeah, you want to talk about weakness and suffering? Let's talk about it, right? He doubles down. And he says, I wasn't just a little weak. I wasn't just a little frail. I wasn't just a little discouraged. He said, I wanted to die. Because at times it was so difficult to follow this calling. And yet, this same Paul, right, who admits that at times he wanted to despair of life itself. In verse 4 says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. You know, that, that image, right, of, of not, just, not just sad, not just frustrated, but, but losing heart where it feels like the strength, the energy has been pulled out from us. In Amharic, which is the language we speak in Ethiopia, uh, the phrase, the idiom we use is, is cutting hope. 
You say, you know, I've, I've cut hope. Like hope is a string, right? And you're just hanging on to the string. And then at some point, you, you just get so tired and so weary, you just cut it. As if you just fall into the abyss and you don't care anymore. Right? It's another image of what it means to lose heart. And Paul says, yes, we've suffered. Yes, we've struggled. Yes, we are being opposed on this side and that side. But we do not lose heart. So, if that's true, if Paul can say that, then, then what does that show us? What does it teach us in our own callings, in our own life? Probably less dramatic than Paul's, right? Most of us are not traveling around the ancient world and in danger of wild animals and thieves and all kinds of stuff. He had a particular dramatic calling. But yet in each of our callings, in each of the places where God has put us and the struggles we face, how do we also, with Paul, not lose heart? And I think this passage, uh, it teaches us something deeply important that I want to share with you this morning. As Paul faces this opposition, again, not only from outside, but also even from within his own body, right? What does he say? Uh, basically, he, he talks about how this treasure of the gospel being in a jar of clay, and then he leads into how his, even his own body has been afflicted and broken down in life and ministry. And yet, he says, we don't lose heart. So, the question is, why does he not lose heart? What, both, what, what might he be tempted to do as he faces this struggle? What might we be tempted to do? And alternately, what hope does he find in the gospel of Christ that leads him from that? First, what, what is he tempted to do as he faces this opposition from outside as he faces this opposition from even within his own flesh, right? In sickness and suffering, and even talks about death, right? The death that comes in his body. What is he tempted to do? Well, verse 2, he says, let me tell you what we might be tempted to do, but what we have not done. He says, verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. And we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Again, you can hear him interacting, right, with these other teachers that have said, you know, Paul's message is weak, his body is weak, he's suffering, he's not a good orator. You can, basically, these other teachers telling the, the Corinthians and other churches, you can do better than this. And here I am. Right? They're, I'm the alternative, is the way they've set themselves up. And Paul says, you're right, we've suffered. And one temptation in that suffering, one temptation when calling is difficult, is that we could mess with the message a little bit. We could mess with our calling a little bit. That we could look at this path that is difficult and say... Uh, Really? Is that really the, the message that God has called me to live out? Is that really the place where God has called me to live out? Wouldn't it be easier if we just tweak things a little bit? 
right? If, if we tampered just a little bit with the message of God's word so that it was a little less direct, it was a little less challenging, it was a little more victorious, it was, it was giving people a little more of what they wanted to hear instead of what it actually says. And these other teachers were doing that. We experience this a lot in Ethiopia. I often tell people, it's not hard to plant a church in Ethiopia. All you have to do is buy a keyboard and a loudspeaker and some nice clothes and tell people what they want to hear. That's all you have to do to plant a church. People will come. Lots of people will come. They'll come from all the other churches because there's a new guy in town and he's wearing nice clothes and he's got a great keyboardist and he's saying, God wants your best life now, right? We have our own versions of that, don't we, as Americans. Uh, It's in Ethiopia too. And people come, why? Because it's so appealing, right? It's, It's not the message of Jesus looking people in the face and saying, you want to follow me? Pick up your cross. You want to follow me? Eat my body and drink my blood. What? That's, that, you know, people, church growth strategists, you know, if they were living in Jesus' day, they're like, okay, we're going to sit down with you. You need to tone this down a little bit. Okay, this is not, this is not going to get you the kind of congregation that's going to make a stable, self-sustaining church. And we need to, we need to tweak this message a little bit. Right? I'm not saying we speak offense on purpose, right? The gospel of Christ is offensive enough by itself if we speak it truthfully. With love, with grace, winsomely, patiently. But just the simple message of the gospel, which is that God claims an authority over your life. That by itself, right, is exclusive and offensive to all the ways that whether we're a believer and we count ourselves as a follower of Christ, whether we're not a believer and we don't. Either way, we are offended. I'm offended that God doesn't think I can handle my own life and make my own decisions. And that he says, no, he is the authority. He's the one that gives me the calling. And that when it's difficult, he says, stay there. That's what I have for you. We are all tempted to that kind of manipulation, if we're honest. Maybe we're not tempted to be a prosperity preacher in Ethiopia. But all of us experience ways where it is easy to shrink back from our calling. Whether it's pastoring, whether it's teaching, whether it's parenting, whether it, whatever it is in your work, all the places where God is speaking to you, calling you, leading you to stand and speak with courage, with faith, with truth, in a faithful and winsome way, wherever God has placed you. But Paul says we've renounced those things and we refuse, even though it would be easier, we refuse to tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, not a caustic statement, 
Not an aggressive statement. Not an authoritarian statement. But an open, faithful, truthful statement. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. And Paul is not a pie-in-the-sky optimist, right? A lot of people aren't going to get it, right? He says, our gospel is going to be veiled to some people. But somehow in the, in the mystery of God, that it is veiled to those who, who don't have the eyes to see, it is veiled to those who, for whatever reason, have hardened their hearts and their minds, and that even, Paul says, the spirit of this world is also collaborating with them in hardening their hearts and minds and blinding their eyes to who Christ is in the image of God. But the opposite is also true, right? That Paul says, as we speak openly about the gospel, that there are those for whom the veil has been removed. And that in Christ, by some mystery and power of His grace and His Spirit, that the veil is taken off and that we can see. We may not even know why. Maybe we've heard this message over and over and it it doesn't penetrate our hearts. And then there comes a day, for whatever reason, that God's Spirit works and takes the veil away. And we look and for the first time, we begin to see Christ for who He is. And we see the glory that is in Him. That glory, right, that is shown on Moses' face in our Old Testament reading, where he comes down from the mountain and he has been in direct communication with God in a really strange, amazing way. So much so that his face is glowing and that after he delivers the message of God to the people, he covers it with a veil so that they're not freaked out, basically. So that they can be around him. And listen to what Paul says. Uh, It's not exactly in our passage, it's a few verses before. What is he saying? He is saying that in Christ, the ministry that he's been given, the ministry that we have been given through Christ, is in some way more amazing, more direct than even that. That Moses, even though he sat and talked face to face with God, right, as he proclaimed the messages that he had heard from Mount Sinai, fasting for 40 days. This is dramatic stuff. And Paul is saying, yet Moses still had the veil over his face. But that now, in Christ, that veil has been removed. And that in some amazing way, when we speak the truth of Jesus Christ to those around us, That God, in His mercy, has sent His own Son to the earth to take on flesh and to live and die and be raised again for us and ascended into heaven for us so that we might be cleansed and forgiven and reconciled to God forever. That when we speak this truth of the Scriptures, that we speak with a directness and an intimacy with God that is greater even than Moses sitting on Mount Sinai, looking God in the face. How can that be? I don't know. Because what? Jesus is 
the fullness of God. And that when we behold His face, as Paul says, we behold the glory of God Himself. The veil taken away. Light shining in the darkness to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, as he says in verse 6. So with all that set up, now what do we do? If that's the ministry we've been given, if that's the temptation we have, then what's our hope? And Paul gives us three things that I'll just share very briefly. He's already, right, he's already said in, in uh, chapter 3, that we with unveiled face behold the glory of God and that we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How does that happen? Three things. Because in Christ, our insufficiency is filled and transformed by His sufficiency. Second, because in Christ, our death is filled and transformed by His life. And because in Christ, the unseen things that we can only grasp by faith in Christ, in the fullness of time, become a reality that we can see. Paul says, therefore, having this ministry, we do not lose heart. Even though I'm insufficient, he says in verse 4, it is God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. We are insufficient. Paul says we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. A common thing. This is not gold. This is not silver. This is not bronze. This is clay. This is poor people's stuff that you use for a while and then it gets broken. Right? Anybody who has kids, you, buy, you, buy, you get your, your flatware, right? You get your matching sets. And then as the years of marriage and life go by, you lose a cup, you lose a plate, you lose this, you lose that. Why? Because ultimately it's common stuff, right? We're not eating off of gold. Jars of clay are that way. You use them, you break them, and you get rid of them. And Paul is saying, that's kind of like our bodies. Those of you, right, who are... There's, a, there's an age. I've now crossed the age. I'm, I turned 41 this year. I've crossed that age where I'm, I'm not on the ascendancy anymore, right? This, uh, I'll, be, I'll be honest. I, genetically, I've got some issues. I started developing arthritis in my 20s. And uh, for reasons I won't go into, those biologists among you, I have early onset osteoporosis. So I have the body of a 40-year-old. I have the joints and bones of a 75-year-old. And by God's grace, I'm in treatment and it's getting better. I don't share that for you to feel bad about for me. I share it, right, to say we live in jars of clay. And that all of us come to these points physically, mentally, emotionally, where we recognize we are frail. All the more so in the accumulated stresses and strains of life and ministry and calling. In the places where God puts us. Those of you who have cared for aging parents. Those of you who are now the aging parent. We recognize that our bodies are frail. But in Christ our insufficiency becomes sufficient. Even though we have this treasure in a jar of clay. That we are a mess and we're frail. 
that happens. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I don't like that verse. Right? I don't want to hear that my arthritic joints somehow enable the glory of Christ to be displayed more beautifully. But it's true. Whether it's our emotional frailty, our mental health, our physical health, our whatever, whatever frailty we face, you face, what does it look like for that insufficiency to be transformed by the sufficiency of Christ? That your frailty, not metaphorical frailty, your actual frailty, is beautiful, is holy, is redeemed because it shows forth the gospel more clearly that the power and the glory belongs to God and God alone. This is one reason why Paul can say we do not lose heart. Paul had some physical issues. We don't know exactly what they were, but it was clear that he was in pain somehow. Jesus gets all the glory, Paul would say, and the same is true for us. Two, death becomes life. Paul says we always carry around the body in the body, the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. In verse 14, he says, so that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with him and bring us into his presence. That even as our life experiences the encroachment of death, right? We don't like death. We don't like to talk about death. We like to avoid it. And yet we all feel it coming in some way or another. And Paul says, rather than fearing it, we say that in that dying, in that frailty, that we are united to Christ in his sufferings so that we too might be united to him in his resurrection. And Paul goes there in the next chapter, right? In 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about this resurrection body that we have as our hope in Christ. And then lastly, why do we not lose heart? Because in Christ, unseen faith becomes seen reality. We see this a couple verses after the passage that was read. Verse 16, he repeats it. Notice, verse 1, now verse 10. Again, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, we've talked about. Our inner nature being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is saying that we can maintain the hope of Christ and not lose heart, even in the midst of difficult callings. Because the things that we see are preparing us for things we don't see. That can mean spiritual, right? Spiritual things that don't appear to our eyes, but it it can also just mean future, right? That in future hope and faith, we long for a day where Christ will make all things new, where our body, though dead, will be raised to new life in Christ, where every tear will be wiped away, where every disease and sickness will be healed, that we cling with hope to the unseen reality of faith. 
And so that Paul, while he's hungry and cold and suffering and traveling and whatever else he was facing and says, we wanted to die because it was so hard, but we did not lose heart. We were afflicted. We were persecuted. We were perplexed, he says, but we did not despair. We were not destroyed because Christ gets all the glory. Paul talks about this as an eternal weight of glory. And C.S. Lewis also wrote about that eternal weight of glory that awaits us. In one place, he writes about the fact that in some sense, human beings are the losers and God is the winner. Always. Because we all come to those points, he talks about it this, in this way, all of us come at some point in our life, some of us maybe not to the point of our death, but in some way, we all come to this point where we can no longer take a step, where we must stop and recognize God's power and our own weakness. Only in these great moments in our life do we understand the meaning of God's guidance in our life. In fact, he says, it is these moments, in fact, that make life worth living. We don't like being weak. We don't like being frail physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, but we are. And if you are tempted in that place, in that way, to lose heart, Paul and God's word would encourage you. Christ is more glorious. Christ is more beautiful. The life that he is working within you is greater than your physical body as it gets old. But one day is coming where the unseen will become seen, where faith will become reality, and where Christ will become all in all. That is our hope. It is our joy. And so, brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Let's pray together.